So in this message today, we're really exploring Jesus' claim that he's the good shepherd and why he is the only one who is qualified to be leading our lives. And what we see in this I am statement of Jesus is, is I think, really an invitation for us to come under his leadership. So this is Jesus, right? This is him. This is, this is him contrasting the kind of leadership that he brings to this world versus the kind of leadership like we're often exposed to, right? It's just showing like, like how trustworthy he is and the difference and all of that. And so the problem when it comes to this invitation from Jesus is that we can tend to have this deeply seated suspicion of anyone who claims to be a leader or anyone who promises us anything, kind of like a salesman would, right? This suspicion can cause us to think to ourselves, hear me, I'm, I'm not gonna be led by anybody. This, this, this is, how, this is how, how it goes, especially in like, like America in 2021, where individualism, self-expression, self-reliance is like, is like at an all-time high and, and really the, the God or the religion of, of our present moment. Like this, this is what's going on here. Like, like we, we hear this invitation of Jesus. He's saying like, like come, I, I'm the good shepherd. I, I can lead you to where you really wanna go. And what happens in a lot of people because of this deeply embedded, deeply seated suspicion we can just think to ourselves, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm, just gonna, I'm just gonna lead myself. Uh, so good to be back together this week. Again, we are continuing on in a teaching series we've been in for a number of weeks now called I Am, uh, where each week we've been looking at one of the different unique I Am statements of Jesus uh, found in the Gospel of John. Uh, today we're in week six and just excited to continue teaching in this direction. Uh, it's, been, uh, it's been a blast for me. So uh, if you haven't been with us uh, or might have forgot, let me just sort of bring you back up to speed really quick. Uh, If you're taking notes, in this series, we want to get our minds around not just what Jesus has done, but who he is. So let me say that again. We want to get our minds around not just what Jesus has done, but who he is. Really in, in the belief that understanding who Jesus is would strengthen and embolden our faith in what he has said he has done on our behalf. So that statement's true, that, that uh, understanding who Jesus is will strengthen and embolden our faith, then the question that we probably need to be asking is, who is he? Who really is Jesus? And I think that so often we can sort of go through life uh, with, with all of these you know, very limited or even preconceived notions about who Jesus is. Much of the world seems to have an idea and an opinion or even a story about who Jesus is. I mean, even people who aren't his followers would have ideas, stories, and opinions. And so for, for me, I guess, in this series, the, the question of most importance and of greatest significance, I think, I think to us, is not, you know, what does secular culture have to say about Jesus? Or, or you know, what are, what are people thinking about Jesus, you know, right now? The question of importance is, who does Jesus say he is? And in this series, what we've been learning so far is, is that all throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus makes some pretty shocking claims about himself. Jesus uses this, these shocking claims to really describe who he is to anyone who would listen, right? And so, so we've mentioned more than once, but this series could have very easily just been called Jesus According to Jesus, right? Because, uh, you know, instead of, of, you know, using all of these external opinions to sort of tell us about Jesus, we've just decided in this series to let Jesus sort of speak for himself, to let him sort of tell us who he is in his own words. And what we have found out is that over and over again, Jesus uses this phrase, I am, to describe himself. And on the surface, that might not seem like a very big deal to you or, or to me until you realize that it's the exact phrase, it's the exact name that God gives himself in the Old Testament during this conversation with Moses where God appears to Moses through 
the burning bush, okay? So this is a big event. This is, this is the event that, that, uh, if, you know, that, that, that God has with Moses there at the burning bush. This is, this is why the, the claims that Jesus makes about himself in the New Testament are so shocking. Because here you have in the, in the Old Testament, God really revealing himself to Moses and to the people through this name, I am. And in the New Testament, Jesus essentially does the same thing. In fact, what we've been learning is that repeatedly he uses this name to describe himself. He uses the Greek translated phrase. Uh, uh, it's the Greek translated version of this exact phrase to intentionally make the claim that he is, in fact, the God of the Old Testament. So here we have Jesus making this claim that he is the God of the Old Testament manifested in the flesh. He's essentially claiming that God is not just in a fire, God is not just in a cloud, God is not just in a burning bush, but that he's in a person, and that that person is standing before you right now. That's a pretty shocking claim. Think about if you were a first century Jew and you were hearing Jesus teach like this, and this is much of the reason why so many of them wanted him dead. And so we're going to continue on in this series today. We're going to continue on in John chapter 10 specifically. And uh, there are actually two I am statements that Jesus makes in John chapter 10. A few weeks ago, we learned that Jesus says, I am the door. And uh, today we're going to look at the second I am statement that Jesus makes in this chapter in verse 11 uh, when he says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, the audience that Jesus is speaking to, it's obviously, you know, first century Jews, but it is sprinkled with all kinds of religious leaders, the Pharisees. And Jesus is making a claim of deity right then and there. He is saying that he is the God of the Old Testament. They would have understood what he was claiming by making this statement. And just, just to give it to you at, at the front end, I want to kind of just show you their response in verses 19 through 21. This is how they respond. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? They're referring to the story at the end of John chapter 9 where Jesus heals uh, the blind man, or, or you know, um, with, with mud and, and spit. It's the coolest uh, healing at, at all uh, in all the Bible. But, uh, uh, you know, th- this is their response to Jesus' claim that he is the good shepherd. Many of them just thought, man, the guy's demon-possessed. Uh, in fact, if you read in, in what we've been learning, but if you read these, these additional I am statements throughout John, what you find is that, is that most of these statements provoked people to want to kill him. They would pick up stones and you know, want to kill him. Jesus would slip out the back door or whatever, you know, and um, this, these statements, you know, evoked such a, uh, an emotional uh, response out of the, the listeners, especially out of these religious leaders. They wanted him dead. So John chapter 10, where Jesus claims to be the door and the good shepherd, is a text primarily about leadership, okay? Now, a few weeks ago, I mentioned that uh, that Jesus in this chapter is giving a blatant rebuke to corrupt leadership. So the context to John chapter 10 is, is that Jesus is confronting and rebuking the religious leaders of their day, the Pharisees, and he is addressing uh, you know, their, their poor and corrupt leadership. This is what's going on, and it's really interesting to me. Because as I began to read through this chapter and began to pray through this tra- chapter, I, I began to really realize that there is so much overlap in this story 
uh, with, with our modern context today. In fact, I began to sort of read through this chapter, pray through it, and, and, and just began to just feel the reality of our culture and the issues that we even have with leadership in our, in our world and in our present context. I, I, I began to just feel heavy this phrase, if you're taking notes, that our culture aches for good leadership. Our culture aches for good leadership. It's groaning for good leadership. In fact, we just came through one of the most bizarre political seasons of our lifetime where we had multiple candidates all claiming to have the ability to fix what is wrong with America. And for most of us, our response to those claims were with doubt and suspicion, right? Doubt it. Never going to follow through on your promises, right? You just said what you had to say to get elected. This is how we respond when we hear things like this, and, and, and as a result, we're kind of left with this question, you know, who can we really trust to lead us, and can we trust anyone? You see, we, we've seen so much uh, abuse of power, haven't we? We've seen so much abuse of leadership that as a result, I think most of us have developed this sort of, you know, deep, cynical suspicion to anyone who would say, you know, trust me or follow me. We're suspicious of their power dynamics. We're suspicious of, you know, their agenda, and perhaps rightfully so. Here's the issue, though. We actually long to be led. We actually long to be led. There is this longing that we have for someone to give us a compelling picture of the future that we can align ourselves under and follow. This longing is in the heart of the human being. And the problem is, is that today we are often left to wonder, who can I really trust? to lead me and to care for my life. We live at a time where our collective culture is highly suspicious of all forms of leadership. In fact, if you're taking notes, look at this thought with me. We are culturally conditioned to be suspicious of leadership, aren't we? It's just, it's just like how we're wired. Like, I, I, don't, I don't really believe you. I don't really think that, you know, uh, what you're selling me is, is actually going to come true. We're culturally conditioned to be suspicious of leadership. And so this suspicion oftentimes will cause us to distance ourselves from anything or anyone who is going to attempt to lead us. And if by, you know, some reason we have to actually come underneath that leadership, we've got our eye on them, don't we? We, we, we certainly aren't going to trust them. And so I want you to kind of like see that as sort of the backdrop to, to this chapter where Jesus makes two pretty important claims about himself. Use that as the backdrop this morning as we kind of step back into the context. Because as we get into the context, let me just say this. Yes, Jesus is using a shepherding metaphor, which is primarily about something that took place in the ancient Near East. And I don't want to spend my time on that today, really. I mean, I, like, like, I think that's the typical like, go-to in, in, in a message like this is like, let's talk about shepherds you know, and sheep, and let's fall asleep, you know, let's do that. And, and while, while it's significant, like, I, I could spend an entire message and just, like, try to, like, an, an entire week just sort of studying on shepherding and how all that sort of relates, and I think, I think we'd, we'd, you know, I don't know. In my opinion, like, the greater context to John chapter 10 is that Jesus is addressing the leadership problems that have been going on for a really long time. In fact, if I give you the full sweep here, like, of, 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 of the Gospel of John, like, you know, John chapter 7, Jesus, at the, you know, at the end, he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink and you'll never thirst again. He is, he is he's, he's addressing the leadership dynamics. What he's really saying here is, um, it, is, is, is that there's a reason why these people are still thirsty. 
that they've never been given something to drink that, that, that had the ability to quench their soul from their supposed leaders, Jesus is addressing what's really been going on. And he says, like, if you're thirsty still, like, I want you to come to me, come to me and, I, and, and, and drink for me and, and you'll never be thirsty again. And this is like angering the Pharisees. They are beside themselves because they understand fully what Jesus is saying here. They understand fully that he is rejecting them as shepherds, as leaders, and he is basically saying, like, they haven't done their job. If you're thirsty, come to me. John chapter 8, we see the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. It's, it's, it's a pretty famous story, right? Jesus uses his rhetorical skills here, like, like a master, right? And he says, any of you without sin, cast the first stone. To which the Pharisees are left there going, like, I don't know what to do. And they, we kind of get this picture, like, they're just convicted to the heart, and they're just like, okay, you're right. No, 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 they're frustrated with Jesus. He's caught them. They, they, they're, they're frustrated by his mercy. They're frustrated by, by what he has just said. And what's happening here in this story, like, like the, the, the broader context, is, is that Jesus is really addressing the leadership issues. He's, he's showing to anybody who would listen that they've been taught the law all wrong. That he's basically telling them that all sin makes you unrighteous and separates you from God. Not just the big sins. Not just the big sins. So he's, he, he's showing, he's comparing, he's contrasting the massive leadership differences between what he has brought and what they have experienced. And in John chapter 9, you know, right before this chapter that we're in, Jesus heals a man who's been born blind. And uh, it's, it's a pretty amazing story. It's, it's got to be in the top five, at least for me. It's, it's amazing. But the people who actually watched it and witnessed it firsthand, many of them, like, like did not see it like that. Like, they were jealous of Jesus' power. Jesus had a power that the Pharisees did not have, and so they were jealous of him, and, and they hated him. They wanted him dead, and they began to threaten him, and they began to threaten his family. And that is essentially what was going on over and over. What we find here in, the, in, in this kind of progression through the Gospel of John and through these I am statements is that Jesus is contrasting his type of leadership with the leadership of the Pharisees, this corrupt leadership. To do this, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. Now by calling himself the good shepherd, what Jesus does here is he essentially inserts himself into a very famous Old Testament passage of scripture that the Pharisees would have known really, really well. It's actually Ezekiel chapter 34. I want to just show you. Jesus is, is, is we, don't, we don't catch this at first glance because he just says, I'm the good shepherd. And we may not catch that in our, in our modern, you know, American context, but the Pharisees would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. He was referring to Exodus chapter 34, and, and I want you to look at these scriptures with me. This is God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, and it says, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals, and because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock, therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. Catch this, verse 11. For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. This is what Jesus is, is really, really referencing. They, they knew what he's talking about. They knew that in, that, in, that in Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel talked about that, that, that God had been frustrated with those who were supposed to be the shepherds back then. And he knew that Jesus is saying the exact same thing. He's making the exact same claim. And so when Jesus claims he's the good shepherd, they know what he's talking about. 
they know that he's declaring them as unfit to lead and to shepherd the people. They know that he's claiming to be the God who searches, what is it? Searches for his sheep and looks after them. They know that Jesus is claiming to be that right there. And so it is into this type of leadership power dynamic that Jesus steps directly into in John chapter 10 and says boldly that he is the good shepherd. If you're taking notes, I want you to catch this thought with me. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus seems to be establishing this giant fault line between the religious leaders and himself. Showcasing the difference between his leadership and theirs, it is with each of these I am claims that Jesus sets up this all-important question, who will you be led by? Who will you be led, led by? And so in this message today, we're really exploring Jesus' claim that he's the good shepherd and why he is the only one who is qualified to be leading our lives. And what we see in this I am statement of Jesus is, is, I think, really an invitation for us to come under his leadership. It's an invitation to those who are listening in the first century. It's an invitation to us now. Are we willing to come underneath his leadership? And, and the question I think we ask ourselves is, is, you know, with anybody who would, who would be making a claim like this is, is his leadership trustworthy? Can I trust him? Because deeply seated and deeply embedded in us is this suspicion. Can I trust you? Are you going to lead me well? Let me just show you why Jesus' leadership is different and why it's trustworthy. Again, if you're taking notes, different to Jesus' leadership than any other forms of leadership is how he willingly lays down, lays down his life for those he is entrusted to lead. It's, it's the difference, right? It's, this, is, this is the difference. There's no hidden agenda with Jesus. There's no coercion. There's no avoidance of responsibility. No personal gain. You know, he's not out to, like, better himself. He's, he's literally laying down his life to those he has been entrusted to lead. John chapter 10, 11 through 12, Jesus says, again, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I love verse 12 here because he goes on and explains it. He qualifies it. He says, the hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. So he's talking about the difference between those who are sort of looking after the flock, the hired hand, and the actual shepherd. How many of you know that when you rent something, you treat it a lot differently than something you own, right? Ever rented a car? How many of y'all make sure you get that insurance because you know you're going to drive it like you stole it, right? I mean, that is how, that's how it works, Right? You get, a, you get a hotel room, you know, and I know, I know, I know, this is just, this is a lot of people. You, you rent a hotel room and you leave the next day and it looks like some Vegas bachelor party happened in there the night before, right? It's just like, what happened in here? Like towels everywhere, trash filled to the brim of the basket, you know, you've taken all the soap and shampoo and conditioner and put it in your suitcase, whatever, and you're just, I mean, it's just like, what took place in that room last night? And it's, it's just, it's everybody, right? It's everybody, so, and none of you are making the bed, right? Sheets are on the floor, blankets are on the ground, thing about a rental car or a hotel room is that you do not own it. You've just hired it. You've just hired it, and you treat things you own much different than you do the things you rent. And Jesus is clearly making this distinction right here. He's saying the hired hand doesn't own the sheep. I own the sheep. And because I own the sheep, I actually lay down my life for them. I treat them differently. I look after them. If you're taking notes, Jesus makes it clear that his sheep are not temporary possessions, and they do not belong to anyone else. They're not temporary possessions. They do not belong to anyone else. He's communicating ownership here. He's communicating belonging. He's basically communicating that you and I belong 
to him and that he takes us as his own. The story, the story goes on here in verse 13, and, and he says the man, the hired, the hired hand, right? The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And again, he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. The kind of leader Jesus is. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a one-time date, like never, never to be repeated again? You know, you're like, eh, never doing that again, right? I mean, right? you've got to maybe go back into sort of the, 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 the recesses of your memory banks, the ones that you have like tried to delete. But you ever had like one of those days where you're just like, I'm never, that is, I cannot believe, I'm embarrassed that I went with that person. Okay, how many of you do you think are going to take a bullet for that person? Anybody? No. I'm like, no, right? I'm not going to take a bullet for that person. Like, eh, you know, like, maybe somebody else will. But I, I'm not, right? But what about for your spouse? Like, what about for your kids? You know, that's a different dynamic. That's a different deal. That's all you mama bears in the room. You're just like, hold on. You know, I mean, like, that's a different story. That's a different deal. The willingness you have to lay down your life for really a small group of people communicates the kind of relationship that you have with them. Right? It reveals how you feel about that person, too. Jesus makes it clear. He says, the sheep belong to me, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He's revealing how he feels about you. He's revealing the kind of relationship he has with his sheep and desires to have with those who are going to follow him and those who will be entrusted into his care. I mean, you don't just, you don't just lay down your life for people that you don't care about. You don't just do this because, you know, you decide it would be a good idea. Like, no. You lay down your life for the ones that you love. He's revealing his love here. He's revealing the kind of heart he has for us. And he makes it clear that the sheep belong to me and to nobody else. Verse 16 goes on. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. So what he's doing here is he's referring really to the Gentiles, right? Because the, 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 the faith had, had only been exclusive to Israel, right, to, to, to the Jews. And so what Jesus is making clear here is that his mission has been to take this thing global. So he's saying, I have, I have other sheep, and they're not, a, they're not a part of Israel. They're not a part of of Judaism. He says, I, I, have a, um, I have other people out there, and I've got to bring them also with me. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. And then maybe the scripture that can give some of us chills in here today, or should all of us, he says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. No one takes my life from me. Saying, I didn't, I didn't like accidentally die for you. No one like forced me to do this. No one forced me to lay my life down on your behalf. He says, I have the authority to, to lay it down and to pick it up. No one takes it from me. No one takes it from me. So this is Jesus, right? This is him. This is, this is him contrasting the kind of leadership that he brings to this world versus the kind of leadership like we're often exposed to, right? It's just showing like, like how trustworthy he is and the difference and all of that. And so the problem when it comes to this invitation from Jesus is that we can tend to have this deeply seated suspicion of anyone who claims to be a leader or anyone who promises us anything, kind of like a salesman would, right? This suspicion can cause us to think to ourselves, hear me, I'm, I'm not going to be led by anybody, this, this, this is how, this is how, it, how it goes, especially in 
like, like America in 2021, where individualism, self-expression, self-reliance is like, is like at an all-time high, and, and, and really the, the God or the religion of, of our present moment, like th- this is what's going on here. Like, like we, we hear this invitation of Jesus. He's saying, like, like come, I, I'm the good shepherd. I, I can lead you to where you really want to go. And what happens in a lot of people, because of this deeply embedded, deeply seated suspicion, we can just think to ourselves, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm just going gonna, gonna to lead myself. I'm just going to lead myself. Well, there's several problems with this type of thinking. Right? There's several problems with this type of thinking. Primarily, that the desires of our flesh that exist in our own heart, if followed, will lead us to horrific places. Right? We're tempted into thinking to ourselves, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty educated. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty thoughtful. I'm, I'm pretty discerning. I, I think I'm just going to lead myself. Well, yeah, try that. Right? It leads us into some pretty horrific places when we just trust ourselves to lead ourselves to where we need to go. I mean, have you ever, you ever known someone or yourself dealt with any types of, of addictions? You ever had, you know, maybe on a lesser, you know, uh, on a lesser scale, you had just, you ever just had things in your life you just can't seem to get past or get over? It's like, man, you keep taking one step forward and two steps back. Like, am I ever going to just get rid of this or get this thing out of my life? If you're taking notes, oftentimes the very reason for why we can't lead ourselves is because we need to be saved from ourselves. And yet in our, in our modern Culture, in our, like, like the dominant thought today is like no one's going to lead me. I'm just going to lead myself. No one seems to be trustworthy to follow, and so I'm just going to trust myself to get me to where I need to go. And let me just tell you, this is not just a secular culture thing. This, this has permeated into the church as well. This, this individualism, this, this self-reliance, this I can do it my way. I don't need community. I can handle this myself. And the problem is, is that, is that, is that Oftentimes, the very reason we can't do this well is because we actually need to be saved from ourselves, right? We need to be saved. If we're honest with ourselves, we would admit that there, that there can be, at times, these dark things that exist in our hearts. These things from the past that just keep coming up, right? The things that, that we can't seem to break free of. And so as we try to lead ourselves, we are just led and enslaved by our own desires. And let me just just... just ask you this question, because I think it helps kind of kind of like bring it home. Think, think about it. If you just did whatever you wanted, where would it take you? Right? If you did whatever you wanted, where would it take you in life? Right? I mean, you want to you you read that book? You want to read that story? I mean, like, where would it actually take you? And this is the problem with, 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 us, you know, this sort of rebellion in our hearts that sometimes just gets in the way. Like, we, we want to do things our, our own way. We don't want to conform, and we certainly don't trust anybody else to tell us how to live our life. Where would it take you if you just did whatever you wanted? Why don't you watch this video quick? It's amazing. And that's all you get out of today, right? That is amazing, right? That is amazing. 
This is the result of thinking we can lead ourselves, right? We're like, we think we're free, think we can figure this out, and we are right back where we started. In fact, Proverbs really talks about this. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, it says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Other translations say it leads to destruction. There's a way that seems right. Like, I, think this, I think this makes sense. I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna follow this path, but in the end, it leads you to where you never wanted to go. You never wanted to go. This is, this is, uh, so this is what happens when we, when we determine, like, we're just going to lead ourselves. Like, like and, and sometimes that's like, I mean, that comes from, I think, sometimes a good, a good place or a decent place in us. It's not like we're, we're just trying to be, you know, completely autonomous and just, like, you know, forget everybody. But, but it's, it's, it's sometimes just because of the condition of the world we live in. And we're just like, I don't, I don't know. Like, the world is just crazy. I'm just, I'm just going to figure this out on my own. It's also, like, part of just the American way. you're taking notes, the problem is this, though. The problem is that in our attempt to sidestep having to follow anyone or anything, we end up being led anyway. This is what happens. We, we, we attempt to have to, to sidestep doing this, and like, I'm, I'm going to figure this out on my own, and we end up actually being led anyway. This is a bold statement, but if, if you do not consciously follow a leader, you will subconsciously be led by somebody else. Let me say it again. If you do not consciously follow a leader, you will subconsciously be led by somebody else. And most often that someone or that something is our dominant culture. Most often. This is where our culture basically says, follow me, follow me, follow me, and then disciples you into its you know, vision and values for life. Primarily done, done a couple ways. I read a book, uh, or in, I mean, I'm still reading it actually, but, but uh, uh, reading through this book is called Nudge, and uh, it, it's, it's not, not a... Not a Christian book, but it's a really interesting book in terms of understanding things about our culture and our world. And um, they, they, really, they really outline really a, a couple main reasons for, um, for why this is. Why, you know, we end up being like subconsciously led by, by someone or, or, or something else. And, and the two, two real main things they, they get on is number one, choice architecture. Choice architecture. The choice architect it has the responsibility for organizing the context in which people make decisions, okay? So, Nudge, this book, it talks about how the people who create these choice frameworks are able to influence the outcomes of people without those people knowing that they have been influenced. So, uh, in other words, you think you're making a certain decision that is based on your own individualism uh, and unique self-expression without realizing that you have actually been nudged Right? You've actually been nudged to make that decision based on or by those who have created the choice framework for which your decision lives within, that your decision lives within. Okay? An example they give here is they talk about the, these, these kids, kids' lunchrooms in, uh, in, in New York where uh, they replace the desserts with fruit to sort of um, address or cut down on childhood obesity. So instead of them saying, hey, do you want cake or do you want an apple? They said, would you like an apple, an orange, or a banana? You get to choose. Okay, so they, they created the choice framework for, for the decision to be made, and then it led to the kind of outcome that they were uh, wanting in the first place. And so this, this is one of the ways that, that if you aren't consciously following a leader, you will subconsciously be led by something or someone else. It's through choice architecture. It's, it's the choices that, are, that our culture gives us uh, to, 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 to follow. The other one 
uh, they mention in here uh, is called manufactured consent. It's uh, actually a phrase or a, uh, um, an idea that uh, coined and created by Chomsky and uh, wrote a book, Manufacturing Consent. You can read uh, if you'd like. But um, basically, manufactured consent is being made to want what you want without knowing you're being made to want it. And, and I think all of us kind of kind of can can understand how this works because you know this is like this is big tech 101, right? I mean, each of us, whether we realize it or not, we have a digital profile. You know, every click you make is being carefully is carefully cur- curating a series of advertisements that are intended to tell you what you need and then to lead you to an outcome where you're making a purchase of some kind, right? This is this is how it goes. Have you ever you ever? Uh, put something in your, in your Amazon cart, and then you're on Facebook, and you're like, how did that get over here? You know, manufacture, manuf- they're manufacturing consent. Oftentimes, and this is what I thought was really interesting, oftentimes manufactured consent goes a step further, though, and it's a little bit more uh, insidious. Like, this, this is what, what it does. Oftentimes, manu- manufactured consent is more carefully accomplished through the creation of slogans that no one can be against and everybody is going to be for. So they create like a type of propaganda. So an example, and not to get ultra-political in here this morning, because I don't ever do that, right? But, but uh, I don't, honestly. But, but uh, a great example of this is, is Black Lives Matter. And it's, it's, it's the creation of a slogan that everyone's going to be for and no one's going to be against because the words themselves are like, well, yeah. Like, of course. Of course they matter. Like, of course. But what they talk about here in choice, in, in uh, I'm sorry, in manufactured consent is that, is that when you create slogans that no one's going to be against and everyone's going to be for, you can now come up with an ideology that no one can resist. So then you begin, you begin to wrap this slogan with an ideology. It's really similar to what also took place with like, um, make America great again, right? And again, or whatever, like, like it, 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 it's a phrase, like we believe in that. We're like, yeah, let's make it great. Let's do it, let's do it again. And, and, and then for a a group of people, they actually, they actually clothed or wrapped an ideology around that, which, you know, hopefully you're like me and just were like, ugh, like, what is that? I, want, I don't want to be a part of that ideology, but I, I certainly believe in, like, making America great. So with choice architecture and manufactured consent, the goal, if you're taking notes, is to architect the environments and then the environments shape you. Architect the environment, then the environment shape you. So this is this is the problem. We're like, I'm just going to lead myself. You're actually not leading yourself. You're subconsciously being led by someone or something, being influenced by someone or something. This desire in us to be individualistic and to just sort of figure this out on our own, like it, it just it leads us to places we don't want to go. And I think if we aren't careful, we'll allow ourselves to become shepherded by the choices our culture is giving us. And so if that happens, if that happens where we become shepherded by the choices our culture gives us, like, like what, what will our response be then? How will we react if we start to be shepherded by the, shepherded by the choices our culture gives us? How are we going to respond and react to that? Well, our typical response to being some subconsciously led by someone or something else is that we often end up doing what sheep do. We go to where we have been led to go. That's just, that's just what happens. In 2005, in the BBC News, there was a story. The title of the story was Sheep in Turkey Die in a Mass Jump. 
there was 1,500 sheep in Turkey. One of them decides they're just going to jump off this cliff. And so as a result, 1,499 other sheep all jump off the cliff as well. Quoted from the article is this right here. It, says, it said, more than 400 sheep died in the 15-meter fall. Their, their bodies cushioning the fall of 1,100 others who followed. Okay, so if you, I mean, sheep are, they're cushy, right? They, they're, they're, they're fluffy. And so 400, the first 400 go off the edge, and they're all, they're all dead. The, the other 1,100 who follow Sue end up being spared just because they land on the bodies of the dead sheep. And I just, I just thought, man, like, this is so perfect. It's so simple and so perfect because we actually are no different. This is why the phrase sheeple has become so popular. Get a few people with influence and notoriety to head in a certain direction and everyone else will follow. This is what happens when there's a leadership void. This is what happens when like the longing of our heart to be led by someone who has a compelling vision of the future that we can align ourselves under and follow is, is non-existent, is difficult to find, is is absent. And this is why, like, when Jesus comes along in John chapter 10, he wants to make it clear. He wants to make it clear to them, and he wants to make it clear to us that he has really brought a form of leadership, a type of leadership that is foreign to this world. Jesus is the God of the universe in human flesh who voluntarily inserted himself into the human story and then out of his great love for us, released another kind of leadership all together. And so we look at Jesus, like you, you, you evaluate who he was, and you know, how he lived his life, his leadership. It's, it's not abusive. It's a leadership that doesn't injure people. It doesn't take from them. It's not self-seeking, it's not self-promoting. It doesn't lead us off a cliff. For his whole life, Jesus was tending to the flock. His whole life. He's strengthening the weak. We watch him. He's strengthening the weak. He's, he's healing the sick. He's bandaging the injured. He's bringing back the strays, and he is saving the lost. In fact, in Luke chapter 15, we see this parable that Jesus gives about the lost sheep where he reveals to, to us in this parable the kind of leader he is. The kind of leader he is. The one who leaves the 99 to find the one. It's like an upside down kingdom. It's a kingdom that doesn't make sense. It's a leadership that is foreign. A leadership that, 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 that we struggle to even embody ourselves. That leaves the 99 to feed the one. His leadership, catch this, it, and I'm getting ready to close, but his leadership is one of washing feet. Welcoming in outcasts. Blessing and loving those with tremendous sexual brokenness, prostitutes and adulterers, like he blesses them, he loves them. His leadership brought together the most culturally diverse people you can imagine as his disciples. And yet somehow these people became willing to submit their story underneath his leadership. Somehow. Somehow. Would you stand with me this morning?
there has never been someone else like Jesus in all of human history. There has never been anybody like Jesus in all of human history, and there never will be again. This good shepherd is asking you and me to trust him to lead us. That's, that's what's going on here. He's asking you and I like to let him lead, to trust that he's good, to trust that he can take us to where we really want to go. He's asking us to just take our hands off the wheel and to not, to not lead ourselves, to not be tempted into this, this, this process and this flow of like leading ourselves. And he's, he's asking us to submit the, the reins, submit the control to, to him. He's asking us to not, not to be led by like dominant culture and what everybody else is doing. He's asking us to submit our story underneath his leadership. And so there's really like a couple things. You know, I, I, just as I close here, I, I began to think this question to myself this week. Where would I be, where would I be if I never let Jesus lead my life? Not good. Like where would I ever be, if, where would I be if I never let Jesus actually lead my life? And I wonder like, like where, where do you think you'd be? Where do you think you will be if you don't actually let Jesus lead every part of your life? And I think that the problem, maybe to the, this type of audience that I'm speaking to today, is that is we can allow him to lead portions of our life, fractions of our life. And we can think we're actually doing a pretty good job. Like, oh yeah, of course, like I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing it this way, I'm doing it this way. And then we can, we can actually hold some things back but I wonder what would it look like if you gave Jesus the opportunity to lead all of your life, to actually lead the whole thing? And what do you think it will look like if you continue on a path of not letting him lead all of you? Where do you think it'll take you? It'll probably take you where it takes everybody else. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? If you're here today and you would just say, Pastor Jordan, like I, I, gotta, get, I gotta get a couple things right here. Like I absolutely need to, need to stop trying to lead myself. I keep getting in my way. I, I know that there's an issue there. Would you just slip your hand up here? I just want to encourage you with prayer today, if that's you. Like, this is like a real deal thing for you. It's just, it's like, there's a lot of self-reliance. There's a lot of, just, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to, I'm going to do it my way. You would just say, you know, it is, it is, it is evident to you this morning that Jesus is not leading every area of your life. Could I just see your hand today? I want to just encourage you in prayer. You want to you see that change? You want to see that change. Father, we just invite you now. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. I pray that you would begin to break down every wall right now in Jesus' name, every area of our lives. God, that is not submitted to you, I pray in Jesus' name for some powerful decisions to happen right now. Break down every barrier, oh God. Release every captive in Jesus' name. Begin to renew our mind, God. Renew our thinking in Jesus' name. God, release us from this, this mindset that, that says we have to rely on ourselves or figure things out on our own. I pray in this room, God, under the sound of my voice, that person after person after person would just be finding themselves trusting you in a way they have not yet before. I thank you that you are the good shepherd and that you lead well and that you're worthy of our trust. And so, God, we give you control in this place today. And I pray, God, would you lead and would you lead us now? 
Would you lead us now? You tell us that you lead us not into temptation, but you deliver us from evil. You lead us beside quiet waters. And even when we go through the valley of the shadow of death, you tell us that you go with us through it. And so, Lord, I pray today that there would just be this release that we feel as we begin to trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.